If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Psalm 51. Today's text. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles all around you. Uh, feel free to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home. There's little doubt that David looked out of place as he walked out into the valley of Allah. The army of Israel behind him, the Philistine army in front of him. The youngest son of Jesse had no armor on. He carried no sword. He had only a shepherd's staff. And as a shepherd, young David had been tested against lions and bears, both potential man-killers. But when he faced the Philistine champion Goliath, he was facing the fiercest warrior out of an entire nation of warriors. But David had been anointed by God. He was filled with God's Holy Spirit. And as a result, his trust in God turned to bravery. And his love and his reverence for God would not allow him to stand by and do nothing as the Philistines defied and mocked the army of the living God. Well, the story of David facing Goliath is a favorite among Sunday school programs at churches all around us. What happens next in that story is something we don't typically see painted on church nursery walls. With a well-placed stone, David crushed the skull of his monstrous enemy. He rushed in and took up his enemy's own sword and decapitated him. He took his head as a trophy of God's power. The army of Israel then pursued and defeated the frightened Philistines. From this point on in Scripture, David is no longer the shepherd boy who plays the lyre for the King Saul. He's a mighty warrior. We read that David's reputation in Scripture grows. He, he goes from heroic leader to successful military campaigner. Everywhere the Philistine army raises its head, David crushes it. In fact, David and his men are so successful, Scripture says they are more successful than King Saul and his men. And we learn that because of this success, David's name becomes highly esteemed among the people. Now, unlike King Saul, whom God rejected, Scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. We see that in almost every way, David is like a better version of Saul. David eventually becomes king after Saul dies. And if the story of David stopped here, it might have a happy ending. But it doesn't. You see, later in David's kingship, this better king, this anointed one, God's chosen leader, falls into sin. The book of 2 Samuel in chapter 11 sets the scene of this sin in a way that's very telling. It opens like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
And it was while David was alone at Jerusalem in his kingly palace that sin crept in and took over. Verse 2 says this, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant, uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I just read that twice, sorry. David is overcome here by temptation. This is what happens. He's on his roof, looking out. He sees, he desires this woman Bathsheba, and he takes what he desires. And like all sin, his adultery with this woman has terrible consequences. She becomes pregnant. There's no longer any hiding this affair. The husband of this woman will now know exactly what happened. But rather than facing up to what he's done, David digs in. He heaps sin upon sin to try and cover up his crime. We read in verse 14, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So God's anointed king, his faithful warrior, his inspired musician, the same man who uttered the words of Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This David, in one fell swoop, has gone from the hero of the story of Israel to a villain. But the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to confront David in his sin. Nathan rebukes David. And in this rebuke, God mercifully opens David's eyes to what he has done. And he is cut to the core. Today's text, Psalm 51, was written by David after this confrontation, the background, the context of this psalm is David realizing his wickedness. And we need to keep that context in mind as we read Psalm 51 this morning. It begins like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you 
and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence, and take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors Your ways, and sinners will return to You. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare Your praise. For You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Amen. Scripture is full of examples of men and women crying out to God in the midst of great suffering. But when we read this psalm, we need to be careful to recognize why David is suffering. You see, David is not grieving over external evils, things that have befallen him or happened to him. While this psalm is clearly rooted in the events of 2 Samuel, David doesn't even specifically mention the actions that are the source of his grief. His grief goes deeper than those actions. His grief goes deeper than the circumstances of his sin. His grief goes to the source of his sin itself. As one author puts it, among the outpourings of the human heart agonized by the consciousness of sin, This psalm stands preeminent. The agony, that consciousness, awareness of sin, and David's heartfelt cry to God for mercy are where we need to focus this morning. And so this sermon will have three questions. Number one, what is sin? What is sin? Number two, what is repentance? And number three, what is forgiveness? 
Question one, what is sin? In verse three of our psalm, we read, for I know my transgressions. The word David uses here, transgression, is not one we use much today, but its meaning is clear. A transgression is an act that goes against a law. It's a breaking of a rule or breaking of a code of conduct. It is an offense. So no matter who you are, no matter what views you have of God and sin, we all recognize that there are certain things that human beings just shouldn't do. There seem to be these universal rules about humans should and shouldn't behave. For instance, when we see images on the news of the victims of human trafficking, or we hear reports of another mass shooting occurring in the United States, when we learn locally of a husband and a father in our very neighborhood who's leaving his family to go live with a younger woman, all of us instinctively say to ourselves, that's not right. This is not how things should be. This is not what people should do. And this experience, this awareness of right and wrong shows a knowledge of God's law. And when we transgress that law, that is the definition of sin. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, took fruit from the, knowledge, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate of that fruit, they violated God's law. Rather than obeying the command of their loving Father, they rejected His command. And this sin of our first parents put them in opposition to God. It shattered their relationship with Him. It broke their communion with Him. And it fundamentally changed something in their very nature. Likewise, in these verses, we see that David is confessing that he has broken the law of God. In fact, in this single episode, this, this list of events that occurs in 2 Samuel, David is guilty of breaking five out of the ten commandments God gave the people of Israel. And in the same way, each of us is guilty of sin for the ways that we have transgressed God's law. But there is no doctrine in all of Scripture that is more offensive to the world than this doctrine of sin. As long as there have been men and women who reject God and His truth, there have been attempts to redefine what sin is. Imagine asking a man who had been caught robbing a bank to give us his interpretation or his view of what the law about robbery should be. As you can imagine... This criminal would probably define the law in such a way that it gets him off the hook. Well, that's exactly what happens when men and women who reject God's truth decide for themselves that they're going to use their definition of good and evil. That they're going to define what sin is. Consider our, our culture around us today where a belief in materialism and evolution has replaced a biblical view of humanity and our origins. This evolutionary view sees behaviors like murder and adultery and theft as just basic animal impulses. After all, 
this view tells us, our ancestors were fish. And we are just highly evolved forms of the same creatures. And the fruit of this view, what this view leads to, is all around us. Our culture today tells you that as long as your actions don't harm anybody else, you can do whatever you want. This view tells us that what we call sin doesn't exist. It has, our behavior has nothing to do with God or His law. Sin is just whatever a particular society decides it doesn't like. But God's Word says nearly the exact opposite. Look at verse 4. David says to God, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now in this verse, David is making use of something called hyperbole. He's exaggerating what he's trying to say for effect. Our sin, without a doubt, hurts other people. The ripple effect of sin always goes beyond what we ever would have imagined. And David knows this firsthand. He knows his transgressions against God have harmed others. His sin has harmed Bathsheba. His sin is harmed and ultimately is responsible for the death of the child that their adultery brought into the world. David has murdered Uriah. And even the other men who died in this foolish, tactless military maneuver that he ordered his men to go to simply so Uriah would die, his sin has caused them to die as well. And yet despite all of this, David sees God as the party primarily offended by his sins. But how exactly is David's sin ultimately against God? Well, the obvious answer is God is our lawgiver. And as lawgiver, to break God's law is to sin against Him. I think there's two other observations we can make from today's text to help us see how our sins are primarily an affront to God. First, let's consider Uriah, the man David murdered to cover his sin. God created Uriah. Like all men, God created Uriah in God's image. He gave him intrinsic value and worth and dignity. And by killing this man, David was treating God's creation as something worthless, as something insignificant and disposable. So it's true, David's sin harmed Uriah, but God created Uriah. Second observation is that God created David. David, like all of us, was created for a purpose, to worship God, to praise Him, to reflect God's glory back to Him. And instead, David has chosen to do the opposite. He's turned completely inward, worshiping and serving his own selfish and wicked desires. So as with David, we should recognize that our sins, though they have a horizontal effect on the people around us, they are primarily not person to person. They are primarily vertical. When we sin, we are using our own lives in a way that we have no right to. We are using our lives for the wrong ends. We are depriving God of the honor and praise and glory that He created us to give Him 
and that he deserves. And when we sin against one another, we are sinning against God's property. A second way that we need to guard ourselves against misunderstandings of sin, a second way that the world attempts to redefine sin, is to present it as simply an issue of ignorance, as simply a lack of information. Human beings, the world says, are essentially good, and we only act sinfully when societal pressures or external forces cause us to, or when we don't know any better. Again, God's Word says the opposite. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. To be brought forth in iniquity can only mean one thing. David was born in a state of sin. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they chose to freely disobey God's command, and they put themselves in opposition to God, that opposition was passed down to every one of us. Think of it like a rotting carcass of a dead animal which has been thrown into a stream and is polluting everything downstream from that carcass. In the same way, we as descendants of Adam and Eve have been polluted. We are born with a depraved nature, opposed to God and opposed to His law and ultimately always seeking to make ourselves like God. Despite what the world says, we are not born with good hearts. We are not even born morally neutral. We are born in sin. This means the biblical category of sin, how how we think about sin through the lens of Scripture, means more than just sin as intentional, willful, conscious acts of disobedience against God. You see, to think of sin as just knowing what I'm doing and acting wrongly anyway is to think of God's law as just a list of external things that we're not supposed to do. But God says His demand on us is greater than that. Think back to when one of the Pharisees testing Jesus asks Him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? What does Jesus say? He responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So God's law demands complete and total submission of the heart and the soul and the mind to the Creator of the universe. Yet this is the very thing that every human being is born into this world and capable of doing. Question two. What is repentance? The difference between the Christian and the unbeliever is not that the Christian doesn't sin and the unbeliever does. If you're in this room and you are in Christ, you still face the reality of your sin every day. And on this side of eternity, we will always find ourselves saying, as David does in today's text, my sin 
is ever before me. The difference between the Christian and the unbeliever is also not found in the heinousness of our sins. It's not as if the Christian's sin is somehow less vile. Like it's a lower degree of sin. And the unbelievers are all worse sins. In fact, if you look around, you'll see that there are unbelievers in this world who outwardly behave with great virtue. They don't steal. They don't murder. They're faithful to their husband or their wife. And then we have David. David, a man after God's own heart who steals another man's wife, impregnates her, and then murders her husband to cover up his evil. It would be so easy for us to look at King David's circumstances and think, I haven't done anything that terrible. After all, David committed adultery. You know, maybe I've looked at another man or woman with lustful thoughts, but I've never acted on that. You know, David tried to cover up his crime by plotting the murder of this, this woman's husband. I've maybe thought mean things about people. I've maybe hated people in my heart, but I've never murdered anyone. Brothers and sisters, listen to this carefully. The only thing that separates you from King David in this account is that he had the power and the opportunity to commit these sins. And don't think for a second that if you had the same kingly authority that David did, you would not have used them for something just as evil. If you ever find yourself thinking that your sins are light, your sins are forgivable compared to the sins of the murderer, the tyrant, the drug dealer, the thief. Remember that it is only the grace of God that has put you in the circumstances of your life and has prevented you from becoming the next Hitler or Stalin or Mao. Because the root of our sins is not in our external actions. It's in our hearts. What God commands of us is not a change of behavior. It's a change of our heart. And that is what repentance is. Repentance is a change of the heart. The difference between a Christian and an unbeliever is that when the Christian sins, he repents of his sin. Look at verse 16 and 17 of today's text. Verse 16 reads, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. As we see in these verses, one feature of repentance is a broken spirit, a broken heart. Elsewhere in the psalm, David speaks of the bones that have been broken by his sin. This language refers to a deep, humbling grief that a Christian feels when he becomes aware of his or her sin and rightly understands it as having brought reproach upon the name of God. This grief is really the effect of having one's conscious, one's eyes awakened to the reality of our sin. And this godly grief is uncomfortable. It's painful 
For David, at times in the psalm, it seems that this grief is almost unbearable. But this grief is a good thing. Not because of the suffering that it causes, but because what that suffering, what that grief produces. As our sister Allison read earlier this morning, godly grief leads to repentance. That is what makes it good. But we have to be careful to distinguish between godly grief that leads to repentance and worldly grief. You see, both of them hurt. Both of them are often accompanied by tears and promises and regret. But worldly grief sorrows only over the worldly effects of our sin. Worldly grief sheds tears because your sin has backfired on you. Worldly grief mourns over disappointing people and over the embarrassment of being caught in your sin. Worldly grief mourns over the painful circumstances, the loss of esteem, the loss of job that your sin may have caused. As we read earlier, godly grief leads to repentance. And godly grief is Godward. It grieves over what we have done to God in our sin. In verse 17, David says, the sacrifices of God include a contrite heart. That's another word that we don't use much in our modern language, but contrite is just a synonym for repentant. And repentance means turning away. The repentant heart is a heart that is turned away from sin and towards God. This idea of turning is essential to understanding repentance as God understands repentance. You see, repentance is not a one-time event. It's not just a feeling. It's, It's not an emotional experience that comes with tears and regret. It's a fundamental change in our posture. See, rather than continuing to submit to our evil desires, the repentant heart has turned away and is resisting those desires. Rather than being hardened to the things of God, the repentant heart has turned toward God and is seeking to obey Him. The repentant heart finds that it's no longer a slave to sin and it begins to go to war against sin. David recognizes that this change in the posture of his heart, this power to go to war against sin and to grow in holiness doesn't come from his own strength. It doesn't come from something in him. It comes from God. We read in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, brothers and sisters, it is God who transforms our heart, who allows us to turn who gives us these new desires and affections that hate sin and love His law. It is God who grants us the strength to overcome our temptation. And yet, God's Word tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God Himself who works in us, giving us both the will and the work for His good good pleasure. 
God gives us the will. God gives us the power to turn from sin. And He commands us to put those gifts to use in our lives. I think far too many Christians in our culture fail to grasp this aspect of repentance. That when the posture of your heart changes, you must begin to fight. This fight is a daily battle and it will go on until the day you die or until the day the Lord returns. Last summer, my son and I got a call from my grandmother, his great-grandmother, saying that there was a large rattlesnake near her bird feeder. And knowing that my grandmother is getting old and her vision is not great, I didn't want a large rattlesnake next to her bird feeder. And so we went out with our rifles and prepared to kill this snake. So we shot it in the head. But we learned something about rattlesnakes that day. And that is that even with a bullet through its brain, a mortal wound, a rattlesnake is still capable of inflicting a deadly bite. You see, the, the snake doesn't die all at once. We had victory over the snake the second we shot it, and yet, more than once, it tried to bite us. Even if you cut the snake's head off and go to pick it up later, that neurological reflex can still cause the dead snake to bite you and kill you. This is what repentance looks like if you're in Christ. God has mortally wounded the sin that once reigned over your heart. And as we sang this morning, we have victory in Christ. But we are also still engaged in a daily struggle against what is left of our enemy. This is a testimony to the perniciousness, the power, the deceit of sin. That even after the grace of God has inflicted this mortal wound against it, our old self still continues to threaten us. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we must fight. Now practically, how can we grow in our repentance? This is an essential question that we all have to ask. I have three sub-points here, three practical ways that we can wage this war against sin. Number one, trust in God to give you the strength. Recall that this means turning to Him, not our own resources, but to God, as David did. We have to turn to Him for the strength. We have to ask God to clean our hearts, to give us the new desires, the new affections that cause us to despise our old way of living, that cause us to love obeying Him. And this means turning to God in His Word and turning to God in prayer. Number two, surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ who are fighting that battle with you. God has given us one another as a gift to encourage one another, to confess our sins to one another, to exhort one another to walk in holiness. And being a part of this local church together is a, it's a meaningful and powerful weapon against sin in our lives. Take hold of that gift and use it. The sin that, that caused David such grief that was the, the impetus for this entire psalm, where did it start? It started when his brothers in arms left to go fight war without him, and he stayed at home alone. Lean on one another. 
Number three, be prepared to sacrifice. You're not only going to have to give up those sins that you once loved. You may find that God is showing you you have to give up situations and habits and circumstances that cause you to be led into sin. Outwardly, repentance might look like downgrading from an iPhone to a flip phone so you don't even have the technology to look at the things you know you're tempted to look at. It might look like giving permission to your brothers and sisters to administer a breathalyzer test on you because you know that in your struggle with alcohol abuse, you can't trust yourself to be honest to them. It may look like quitting a well-paying job because it puts you in morally compromising circumstances. The daily battle of the repentant heart is not glamorous. Repentance is dying to self. It is gouging out our eye. It is cutting off our hand rather than continuing in sin. It is pursuing holiness as if the fate of your eternal soul depended on it. Because it does. And over time, degree by degree, and sometimes painfully slow increments, we become more like Christ. This is the fruit of true repentance. We grow in holiness. And that holiness, that evidence of God's grace in our lives, that confirms that our penance was genuine, is confirming that we are in Christ. And this knowledge, this assurance that we are His, that is what brings the Christian peace. That is what brings David peace. At the heart of this peace is the knowledge that in Christ we are forgiven brings us to point three. What is forgiveness? What about these sins that we've already committed? We've spent most of this sermon thinking about what a great affront to God our sins are. If we stopped here, it would be easy to feel hopeless. Why should a holy God allow us to repent? Why would the God we have wronged so much give us clean hearts when the just Thing for him to do would be to strike each of us down here where we sit today. Well, David gives us the answer in the very first verse of this psalm. He calls out to God and asks, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, David recognizes that in God there is free, unmerited love and compassion. In God's abundant mercy, He has made a way for us to be completely forgiven. The love of God that David is trusting in is steadfast. It is unwavering. And David knows that this is not because of anything he has done to earn God's favor. But it's based on God's solemn commitment and faithfulness to forgive. The love of God does not waver because God does not waver. Rather than giving David what he deserves, God shows him abundant mercy. This is what gives David the confidence to approach God with all of his requests. 
He knows that despite his hideous sins, God's love and mercy and grace are always greater. They are always deeper. They can always cover. There is no sin too great that God's grace cannot swallow it up. But what is truly amazing about this psalm today is that David, living hundreds of years before Christ, likely had very little understanding of how this could even be possible. How could God both forgive my sins in His love and yet be perfectly just? David saw that in the future there would be a coming Messiah, a coming Savior, but he only saw that Savior in dim, shadowy images. Instead, what David trusted in was the character of God. He trusted in God and His faithfulness because God had revealed Himself as a God of forgiveness and mercy. And today, knowing Christ, knowing how we can be reconciled to God, how much more can we trust in God's faithfulness to forgive us? We read in verse 2, David cries out to God, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. This is what forgiveness is. The complete and total removal of guilt from the sinner. Covering what is filthy and making it pure and white. Echoing David's words, the prophet Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God's forgiveness is total. And this gift of forgiveness is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. God showed the depth of His love for sinners when He came as a man and hung on a cross, humbling Himself to the point of death. He endured the wrath and justice that we deserved for our sake. So what does this offer of forgiveness mean for you sitting here this morning? If you're a Christian, know that Christ suffered in your place for your sins out of a deep, unwavering love for you that you can do nothing to change. And just as it would be wrong for you to continue in your sin to continue serving the sin that God has destroyed and given you the power to fight, it would be just as wrong of you to sit here and mourn and feel guilt over the sins that have been paid for by Christ. In our reading earlier, Paul says that the Corinthians grieved, but only for a little while. And that godly grief led to repentance, and there was no more regret. If you are in Christ, you are free from the guilt of your sins. Because as the prophet Jeremiah said, God speaking through him, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. 
if you're not a Christian, if you don't know if you're a Christian, the guilt of your transgressions against the creator of the universe rests squarely on your shoulders this morning. The world will tell you that this burden, this guilt, that little voice of your conscience that, that knows that you've transgressed against God's law, that it's something to be ignored. That your sin, because it comes so naturally, couldn't possibly be wrong. That maybe it's wrong, but God's so loving, He'll just look the other way no matter how you continue to live. No matter how you treat His law. But the God who created you has spoken clearly. Your sins are an affront to Him. And you deserve the fires of hell because of those sins. And yet if you turn your heart away from unrighteousness and trust in Christ, God will be faithful to forgive you. And He will pour out His mercy and His love and His grace on you, just as He did for David. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the example of David, a man after Your own heart, who allows us to see clearly the depth of our sin and the need for our repentance, but who gives us hope that like Him, we can turn to Your Son for the full and complete forgiveness of our sins. We pray that You would let this truth sink into our hearts this morning and that it would deeply affect us as we leave and go out into the world. Amen.